1: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase and a member FDIC. 2024 JPMorgan Chase and Co.
2: Pushkin. There's no one else on Montague Place when plumber Harold Batchelor and his 16 year old assistant William Baldwin set off for their first job of the day. The sun has only just risen on this cold February morning. The pair passed three brick built air raid shelters, ugly, squat, and dank that have been hastily erected amid the neighborhood's grand Georgian townhouses. Something glinting on the ground catches their gaze. Something glassy and reflective. William reaches down to pick it up. It's the end of a broken flashlight. And that's when he sees her. Two feet protrude from one shelter's entrance. Look at that. The feet of a woman. Harold ventures in then hurriedly goes to fetch the police. Inside, the woman lies on her back, her head turned to one side, her scarf loosely covering her face. Her clothing and underwear have been ripped open, exposing her chest and abdomen. Her legs are stained with blood. Her face and neck are dark with bruises. She has been strangled. You know, Evelyn Hamilton's gold watch stopped at 1 a.m. But when it's removed from the pharmacist's cold wrist, it begins to tick once more. As its hands sweep the dial, the police set about trying to identify the presumed sexual pervert who murdered its owner. But Evelyn Hamilton's killer is wasting no time either. He's already seeking out his next victim. Tonight he will meet an aspiring stage starlet, coincidentally, another Evelyn, Evelyn Oatley, and he'll follow her up the stairs to her tiny Soho apartment. This is the seldom told story of women in World War II who were killed not by the enemy, but by husbands, lovers, and strangers wearing the
3: uniform of their own side. It's also the tale of a particular string of murder victims that history has swept from view. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. And I'm Alice Fiennes. And you're listening to Bad Women, The
2: Blackout Ripper.
3: What brought Evelyn's mother, Rosina Magdalena Weber, from the high mountains, dark forests and fairy tale castles of southern Germany to the lead mines and textile mills of Earby, is a mystery. So is the story of how she fell in with her volatile, even violent English lover, Walter Judd. In the 19th century, economic turmoil and political persecution had seen many thousands of Germans migrate to Britain. And they came from all social ranks, from wealthy businessmen and bankers to the impoverished political refugee Karl Marx. Most were economic migrants. According to one German author, Britain had a reputation for abundance.
4: Money lies on the street.
3: He said that his compatriots would arrive on British soil with little money and little to no knowledge of English. They'd spend a few days in a hotel before looking for a more permanent home and many found prosperity. German migrants were merchants and shop owners, but they also worked in the textile industry tailoring and shoemaking. They entered the food and catering trades too, as waiters, hoteliers and butchers. New arrivals took lowly positions in German-owned enterprises, hoping to save enough money to strike out on their own. Success, wealth and social mobility seemed easier to attain in Britain than back home. And perhaps Rosina Weber had heard tell of the bounty enjoyed by her fellow countrymen overseas. But while she trod a well-worn path of migration, her circumstances were unusual. She appears to have moved to Britain alone without any of her family at her side, an undertaking more common among German men than women, and one that must have taken considerable courage. Sometimes pimps place disingenuous job adverts in German newspapers to lure women to Britain, And ensnare them in the sex trade. Rosina may well have noticed one such announcement and migrated in hope of obtaining a new position, perhaps in domestic service. Equally, she may have been encouraged by a friend or relative who'd already emigrated, or she may simply have stopped off en route to the United States but ended up staying. While London attracted many emigres, German
2: communities thrived in other cities too. Bradford, a centre of textile production in the north, boasted a Little Germany district with chapels, warehouses, and factories, all built with the wealth generated by the newcomers. Maybe Rosina stopped off in Little Germany, for somehow she met Walter Judd, the son of a shop owner from Earby, a small rural parish nestled amid the rolling hills and windswept moors northwest of Bradford. When the couple married in 1905, Rosina was already pregnant with a son, Herman. In April 1908, a daughter, little Evelyn, followed. But if Rosina had hoped for a life of domestic peace in England's rural north, she'd be swiftly and bitterly disappointed. Walter jumped between jobs, taking whatever work he could. It's unlikely, therefore, that the family were ever of comfortable means. At one point, he was listed as a master greengrocer, selling vegetables as his father had, But at another time, he was a weaver at a local mill. That is, until he left the looms of the factory floor and joined a walkout over wages and working conditions, with some describing him as the ringleader of the strike action. As the dispute rumbled on, Walter even led a throng of at least 200 furious weavers to the house of a fellow worker who would knock down tools and join their strike.
4: Walter Judd. ...appeared at Skipton Police Court on Saturday... ...charged with throwing a stone through the window of a man named Tattersall.
2: He was convicted of the crime. Walter seems to have been an erratic man and a rabble-rouser... ...who, at his worst, was also violent. We cannot know how Rosina responded to her husband's involvement in these clashes... ...but the heavy fine levied on him as punishment... ...would surely have been difficult for the young family to bear... More trouble followed in 1909. When Evelyn was just a year old, her father again attracted the attention of the courts.
3: Walter was out of work and had been drinking for several days straight when he entered a local inn and demanded more beer.
4: Get me a stout. Come on now, Walter. You've had enough.
3: Discovering that the landlord's wife was alone, he surprised her by unsheathing a number of sharp knives and spreading them across a table.
4: You will look well if I cut your throat for
1: you.
3: He was said to have growled. One newspaper reported that he followed the frightened landlady into a back room, uttering abusive and violent language. Only the arrival of a local butcher, perhaps with cleaver in hand, convinced Walter to leave. In court, Walter claimed he was so drunk he hardly knew what he was doing and offered a humble apology for his sinister and threatening behaviour. But his criminal record with eight previous convictions raises questions about what home life would have been like for Rosina and the children. Walter certainly abused alcohol regularly. Was he temperamental and violent at home too? Another court case, this time brought by Rosina herself, answers some of those questions. It paints a portrait of abject domestic misery. In the summer of 1910, Walter had been released from another local jail and between bouts of drinking had found work as a labourer. One morning, he slipped out of the family home and did not return. According to Rosina, to finance this adventure, he'd sold a truck that didn't belong to him and... Took his hook with the money. With the family breadwinner gone and desperate for an income, Rosina said she had to sell their home simply to be able to feed four-year-old Herman and two-year-old Evelyn. When Walter resurfaced five weeks later, he asked his wife to bring their children and move back in with him. But Rosina refused. He had no home to take them to. And besides, she had a different plan. She would send her children to live with foster parents and go into domestic service to earn her own living. The prospect of parting from her tiny children was no doubt heartbreaking. But Rosina was adamant. There was no other way. She was willing to work night and day, she said, but she could not tolerate Walter any longer.
5: Life with my husband is not worth living.
3: Walter did not attend the court hearing to answer the charge of desertion, and the magistrates made an order of judicial separation. The couple remained married, but Rosina was to have custody of the children, and Walter would pay seven shillings per week towards their maintenance. Better than nothing, perhaps, but still a pittance on which survival would be a struggle. When the household census was taken
2: the following year, Walter and Rosina were still living apart. Rosina, it seems, had been compelled by her circumstances to go through with her plan, surrendering Evelyn and Herman to foster parents. This arrangement was probably organised through the local boarding out committee. The foster couple, who lived in the nearby town of Keithley would have received a weekly payment to cover the children's basic needs. They would have pledged to provide Evelyn and Herman with proper food, lodging and washing, and to endeavour to train them in the habits of truthfulness, obedience, personal cleanliness and industry, as well as to take care that they attended school. Members of the boarding out committee might come and inspect the foster home at any time. Proponents of boarding out touted it as a system by which children born in unfortunate circumstances could
5: form ties among persons of their own class and become self-reliant, independent citizens.
2: Even so, this transition to a new home must have been painfully disorientating for young Evelyn. Rosina stayed close to her offspring, taking a job as a general servant just a few streets away, scrubbing and cooking in the home of a German butcher. She would have lived with the family above their shop. And this shop stood alone, a German island in an area said to be thickly populated with Irish men and women. But in this community, Rosina and her children had still not found safe harbour. And they would soon be exposed to yet more peril and yet more violence.
4: Bad women.
2: The Blackout Ripper will be back in just a
6: moment.
7: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open... You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point Designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking, win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at t-mobile.com slash Unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. You can find inspiring
0: stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
5: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
3: Rosina's new employer, the butcher Carl Andrassi, had previously been in trouble with the authorities for putting diseased offal into his meatballs, a tubercular cow's lung to be precise, and they'd fined him for his malpractice.
4: The court finds the defendant guilty. He must pay a fine of three pounds and costs.
3: He'd been in court again for letting a weight for the shop's scales become chipped and worn, thus shortchanging his customers. Both of these matters were considered trivial, but suspicions about Andrasi and his business practices festered in the neighbourhood, fuelled by prejudice, xenophobia and war, all of which would soon flare into an explosion of hatred. Germanophobia was noticeably increasing. There was a general and persistent undercurrent of anti-immigrant sentiment among locals, but now a particular dislike of Germany was on the rise. Germany was a nation growing in confidence and global clout, a nation challenging the interests and dominance of Britain. In the minds of the British, German migrants were associated with one industry in particular 1,200 German butchers sold to the public. Because food can be a potent symbol of national identity, Germanophobia focused itself on these butchers and the quality of their wares. It was hissed that German meats were putrid and gangrenous. Scandalised newspapers had long fomented this alarm.
4: The intellect of man staggers before the problem of what a German sausage may contain.
3: Germanophobia reached fever pitch at the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. That summer, the press proposed a conspiracy theory. Ordinary Germans in Britain were in fact spies reporting secrets back to the fatherland. And then came lurid reports from the fighting in Belgium that invading German troops had committed unspeakable atrocities there, raping young girls, mutilating children, and shooting nuns. Accounts of how the trouble began vary.
2: Some said the attitude of the Andrasis since the outbreak of the war had annoyed the neighbourhood, The butcher had seemed to celebrate German victories against British troops, supposedly dancing and laughing in front of his customers. Finally, an Irishman, Kelly, entered the shop at the head of a crowd and asked for a pound of German sausage, laying the emphasis on the German. Others
0: claimed that he had
2: requested...
0: A pie without any poison in it.
2: Andrasi reportedly responded to this insult by cursing and then striking Kelly on the nose... Some said they heard Kelly yell.
0: Come on, lads. Let's do to the Germans what they are doing to the Belgians. Come on, let's the like
2: The ransacking right? uh, of the shop that ensued was said to be of unprecedented ferocity. Huge crowds gathered outside, and scores of stones crashed through the downstairs windows, as well as those of the apartment above, where Lucina may well have been cowering. Police constables who intervened were pelted with rocks and bottles. A police inspector was struck on the head and left with a bloody gash, while other officers were said to be bleeding profusely too.
0: You are worse than the Germans for protecting them, shouted the mob. A
2: priest, Father Russell, finally succeeded where the authorities had not and dispersed the crowd, telling them that if they really wanted to fight the Germans, they should head to the army recruiting office. But the following day, the violence resurged and spread. More German shops were wrecked and looted, and the windows at the police station where the Andrassi family was sheltering were smashed. Evelyn would have been six years old, very young, but still old enough to understand that people in her town were angry and old enough to feel afraid.
3: That wave of violence in Keithley and in towns across the land... ...marked out something important about the character of the First World War. Something that a government minister underlined in a speech the following year. This was not a conflict between armies, but between nations, he said.
4: Every individual, whether civilian or not, has got to throw his weight into the scale.
3: The British people took up that challenge with vigour. There were more anti-German riots over the next four years and German women and children were targets of this violence, too. German immigrants were also affected by government policy. Some lost their jobs, and enemy aliens were required to register with their local police stations. Their freedom of movement was restricted, and some were even repatriated back to Germany. Rosina and her children may well have known Germans who suffered desperately under these measures, but they themselves would likely have been spared the very worst of this treatment— Residing with her foster parents, Evelyn's heritage may not have been widely known, and for her part, Rosina had ceased to be a German national, an alien, upon her marriage to Walter. Although they had separated, they were still married, and Walter enlisted and fought the Germans for king and country. Rosina often also went by a name that sounded unquestionably English, Rose Judd. Still... There was a troubling strand of public discourse that did implicate Rosina, Herman, and Evelyn. Journalists and politicians invoked the racialized language of bad blood when they spoke about British children of German parentage. MI5, the British security service, described such children as enemy tainted, and matrilineal German kinship was a particular cause for concern. Those born to German mothers were more likely to be seen as potential future threats. British citizenship on paper was no match for British-German bloodstock.
4: You can't neutralise an unnatural beast, a human abortion, a hellish freak, but you can exterminate it,
3: fumed one nationalistic magazine editor.
2: For young Evelyn, the world must surely have seemed to be filled with bitter enmity. Not only was her home life troubled, her neighbours had also revealed that at any moment, they could turn violently on anyone they considered different. But there were bright spots amid the gloom, glittering distractions from grim reality. Keithley had a thriving theatrical and entertainment scene, boasting several theatres, a picture palace with 500 seats... And the Cozy Corner Picture House, which projected all the world's finest cinedramas three times daily at popular
0: prices. Two tickets for The Unwelcome Mrs. Hatch, please.
2: Cheap and comfortable, the cinema was an immensely popular form of escapism for the working classes.
4: You can sit at the front for twopence-apenny, chairs further back are sevenpence.
2: Booking ahead wasn't necessary. The auditoriums were warm, and the darkness also afforded cinema-goers some privacy.
3: Ooh, east is East. I love Florence Turner.
2: Films would be projected onto a whitewashed screen on the back wall of the auditorium. And because they lacked sync sound, they were often accompanied by a piano or other instruments. Sometimes there were sound effects too, like the tapping of coconut shells to simulate the clip-clop of horses' hooves. Evelyn may well have sat in one of the dark and packed-out Keithley picture houses on a Saturday evening, the air thick with cigarette smoke. Gazing up in awe and wonder as the grainy moving images flickered across the screen. The Age, military discipline, and the experience of war failed to mellow Walter Judd. During his service, he was charged with insubordination and received 28 days' detention. He'd also been wounded and the gunshot had left him permanently disabled. At war's end, a pension was awarded to make civilian life with such an injury a little easier. Evelyn was listed as a dependent. Walter and Rosina appear to have briefly reconciled. In 1919, they were living together in Keithley, but this arrangement did not last. By 1921, he was once more residing with his mother and siblings back in the village of Earby, working as a casual labourer. Walter would never again live with his wife and children, and he would end his days in a lodging house for the homeless. Perhaps Evelyn and Herman felt abandoned by their father, or perhaps, by this point, they were simply accustomed to his absence. These upheavals seem not to have soured Evelyn, for she grew into a warm, kind-hearted young woman with a jolly disposition. By now a teenager, She attended school and worked part-time at a local mill. She would later confide that, as a young woman, she gave birth to a baby out of wedlock. Sex education was almost non-existent at this time, and abortion, still illegal, wouldn't have been a safe or straightforward option either. Apparently, the child was adopted by a couple, and the family moved to Canada. There's no corresponding birth certificate in the archives, But it's still possible that this story is true. Evelyn might have given birth in a local mother and baby home. Many
5: of them run by rather strict religious organisations. The child would just be taken for adoption without consulting the mother.
2: Historian Pat Vane is an expert on social history in the 20th century. Women who don't have support from their families
4: or any other sort of easy support are often forced into adoption. And that
7: was really quite common.
2: Evelyn would have been well aware that as a young single mother, life would be a grinding struggle and attract societal hostility. Still, having her baby wrenched away from her would have been a scarring,
3: traumatic experience. Life moved on. Evelyn, who was said to be enthralled with show business, probably punctuated the everyday, repetitive drudgery of working at the local mill, with trips to the nearby coastal town of Blackpool,
4: seaside
3: right? resorts, which had right boomed during the 19th century, were designed to inspire chair. awe and right, overwhelm the show. senses. Are, hey. As spaces right, devoted to pleasure, they offered a break from the workaday routine of the shop floor, factory bench, or kitchen sink. Blackpool here? boasted piers, promenades, and pavilions. The town was also decked out in coloured lights, the annual illuminations, which, when switched on each autumn, attracted 100,000 visitors. And its palatial, all-weather winter gardens complex included one of the largest ballrooms in the world, the Empress. The resort positively brimmed with entertainment. Music, theatre, circus performances and burlesque shows.
4: Blackpool's audiences are reputed to possess highly developed critical powers that London producers so often present their plays in Blackpool before submitting them to London.
3: The town attracted big-name stars, and it congratulated itself on hosting previews of shows before they hit London's West End.
4: If Blackpool likes it, any other place on earth will love it.
3: It was here in Blackpool, perhaps promenading by the seafront after watching a stage musical or catching a film screening in tremendous natural colour at the Hippodrome, that Evelyn met Harold Oatley. She was around 24 years old, Harold around 28. The pair struck up a relationship. They had things in common... Harold, too, had boarded out with a couple as a child after his mother passed away and had then been adopted. Both shaped by turbulent childhoods and fractured family life, they may well have understood each other. And yet, while they shared common ground, Harold and Evelyn were also very different. Harold's was the humdrum life of a rural poultry farmer in the nearby village of Thornton. Evelyn, on the other hand, seems to have dreamt of one day treading the boards herself, possibly inspired by the West End idols she saw in Blackpool. It wasn't such an absurd dream. Wildly successful singer and actor Gracie Fields came from the northwest and was utterly unashamed of her provincial working-class roots. She'd worked part-time at a local mill and had a Lancashire accent just like Evelyn. And so, while Harold stayed up north tending to his birds, Evelyn, like her mother before her, looked for new opportunities elsewhere. She set her sights on the epicentre of showbiz and took lodgings in the heart of London's West End. But as is so often true with glittering dreams of fame, the reality would be somewhat bleaker. Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper, will be back shortly.
7: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's city of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobilecom slash unconventional awards. That's tmobilecom slash unconventional awards. See you there.
1: Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC.
5: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
2: In the 1930s, the Windmill Theatre was a somewhat odd new addition to London's theatre land. A converted five-storey cinema, the balconies and turrets of its façade were squashed into a tiny frontage that peeked out between the neighbouring buildings. Slightly set back from the main drag of rival theatres in a narrow side street, the Windmill sat in a cosmopolitan quarter. Continental grocers and restaurants interspersed the shops of Italian tailors, makeup artists, and theatrical costumers. Physically at the boundary between slightly seedy Soho and upscale Piccadilly, the windmill occupied an entertainment borderland too, poised on a knife edge between licit and illicit pleasure. Perhaps this combination of bohemianism and racy countercultural nightlife fueled Evelyn's enduring fascination with the venue and its environs. Settling in Soho, Evelyn picked a fitting alias for herself, a starlet's name. Here, she was no longer Evelyn Judd, but Lita Ward. And she told Harold she'd obtained a situation at the famous Windmill Theater. With continuous daily performances of singing and dancing, it promised the snappiest shows in town. And according to the writer Elizabeth Bowen, the venue was so intimate that windmill girls would perform practically in your lap. The theater would eventually become famous for its nude showgirls, with a prudish government censor only tolerated if they stood stock still. It was deemed these girls functioned as
4: a national safety valve
2: satisfying unruly male sexuality in the contained setting of the theatre auditorium.
4: I've never seen a woman like
7: (laughs) you.
2: Evelyn was said to have worked at the windmill before full nudity was allowed, and Harold believed she was a dancer in the chorus. In the 1930s, chorus girls were chosen for their raw singing, acting and dancing abilities. Their training was short, And, for the most part, their performance skills tended to be rudimentary, so it needn't have posed a problem if Evelyn lacked formal training in these arts. As a windmill girl, she would have been subject to a makeover that observed a precise notion of femininity. With carefully plucked eyebrows, good teeth, red lips and permed hair, or even a platinum blonde wig. Oh,
0: hey, big head. Move out the way.
2: On stage, she would have sung, tap danced, and high kicked.
0: The dog see the rabbit.
2: It was a thrilling ride. But the hours were long and the pay was poor, equivalent to a shop girl's salary. The archetypal windmill girl was intended to be remarkable for her freshness and beauty. And while men were expected to sit in the stalls and ogle her, Get a load of that. she herself was to be docile, passive, and innocent of sexual knowledge, or at least to appear so. Theatrical historians have said Evelyn's name does not appear on any of the programmes or showbills for the Windmill Theatre over the years, and nor does her alias Lita Ward, casting doubt over the claim that she performed here. However, for historian of prostitution and nightlife expert Professor Julia Late, this isn't conclusive.
6: Chorus girls are so hard to find in the historical record. There's actually very little record in general about theater and the casts, but chorus girls are particularly poorly documented. And
2: in her own research for her book The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, Julia found that chorus girls sometimes deliberately concealed themselves through multiple aliases.
6: That's one thing I learned about pseudonyms in my research for my book, is that people very rarely only have one.
2: So perhaps Evelyn had another name altogether and used this at the windmill On the other hand, she was already much older than the typical windmill recruit, who was usually only 18 or 19. So another possibility is that Evelyn worked at the windmill not as an official dancer, but in another capacity, such as welcoming spectators to the venue.
6: She could have been a hostess who sometimes went up on stage when one of the other women were not available. She could have worked clearing glasses. She could have worked behind the bar and, again, longed to be on stage potentially and was quite happy for people to assume she was.
2: Whatever the truth, that Evelyn wished to be associated with this iconic site of West End entertainment is important, a central plank in the mythology she was building around the character of Lita Ward.
6: For women working and living in that space, the windmill would have been seen as a coup, as an interesting, exciting place to work, as having made it as a review artist. So I can see why she may, as herself, have allowed that story to circulate.
2: But show business was not Lee Toward's sole occupation. The testimony of close friends suggests that Evelyn also earned her living in Soho by selling sex. And it may well have been through the world of the theatre that she entered this trade.
6: These... Theater spaces were contiguous with the spaces where commercial sex would have been bought and sold. And so women working in those spaces would have been exposed to it. The other thing about working as a chorus girl at a theater is that it paid incredibly poorly. And women were often compelled to supplement their earnings with other work, be that licit or illicit work. The contracts at these theatres were also notoriously bad. You'd be signing a contract essentially saying we can terminate you whenever we want and we can withhold pay and all of those things. And so that's another way in which those two industries were linked, through their precarity.
2: Hostesses and dancers working in these spaces were also encouraged to sell the illusion of sexual availability at work.
6: So the women working there, even if they weren't explicitly selling sex, were expected to act available and to trade on that kind of sex appeal to get men to buy drinks, to get men to come in, and also, of course, for tips. So if you're working at the coat check, for example, for tips. And so there's lots of ways in which these worlds are entangled. Theater provided multiple entry points. I'm in no way saying that every woman who was involved in theater was also selling sex, but there's definitely an overlap.
3: Evelyn continued in this way for a time, seeing clients and enjoying the drinking, dancing and music of Soho's exhilarating nightlife with her friends. But in summer 1936, something happened to make her change her course. Aged 28, she packed her belongings, returned north and agreed to marry Harold. When they wed at the district register office, it was by licence rather than having bands read out in the local area. A licence was a more discreet and far swifter way to marry. But if Evelyn was in a rush because of a pregnancy, she must have lost the baby, for it seems that no child was ever born to the couple. The pair lived together at Harold's quaint Thornton bungalow, Rivermead. But there were strings attached to this union. Before the wedding ceremony, Evelyn had compelled Harold to submit to a particular proviso.
0: My wife insisted that if she should ever tire of her life with me, that I would allow her her freedom, so that she could come back to London to live.
3: Maybe Harold had hoped that the new Mrs Oatley would be satisfied with domestic routine, that London was well and truly out of her system, and she wouldn't ask him to make good on his promise. But the pull of the West End would prove too great to resist... And before long, Evelyn was once more yearning for the bright lights of Piccadilly, for the vibrant chaos and commotion of Soho's criss-crossing thoroughfares, and maybe, quite simply, for the close, supportive and fun friendships she'd formed there. Evelyn Oatley, convivial, kind and a dreamer, could not have known that with each trip back to London and with each new friend she made, She was moving ever closer to another person with an alter ego, though one more sinister and more sadistic. Excuse me,
0: are you waiting for somebody?
3: Soon she would meet an airman who pretended to be an influential and wealthy aristocrat, an airman with sharp features and piercing eyes. Bad Women,
2: The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with
3: genealogical research. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Wardour Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow. David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders, and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller, and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano playing by the great Barry
2: Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening.
7: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash